Hello, thank you for tuning in and listening to the Not The Top 20 podcast. We're covering all things EFL and we're doing so a little later than usual this week, recording on a Tuesday rather than a Monday. That, I'm afraid to say, guys, the result of an attempted assassination. George Ellick poisoned over the weekend by maybe a rival podcast, maybe, uh, who knows, a a jealous lover or, or perhaps a dodgy oyster, George don't like the idea of a jealous lover very much that could <laughs> kick her down badly in the wrong ears um yeah it was it was an oyster and i realized this morning that anyone who listened to the betting show will know that it was the shrimps and the shrimpers who did me <laughs> <laughs> in both Morecambe and south end scuppering my um my selections there and then an oyster has left me in a ridiculous way for the last couple of days um, not very pretty whatsoever. So shellfish, really, um, yeah, not my thing in the last couple of days, but back towards full fitness now. Oysters, oysters, all bad things, of course. Uh, let's get into things belated, but the, the delay helped us to include the Monday night game, which so often we are forced to uh, ignore due to it not having happened yet. Um, but it was Stoke and West Brom, and, and we're going to start with this one. There's quite a lot to dissect uh, over the two teams I suppose firstly quite fun West Brom won 2-0 against Stoke George now the first ever league fixtures in English football on the 8th of September 1888 Stoke nil West Brom and 2 so two historic teams playing out a fixture with the same result as back in 1888 but it's hard to imagine the narrative at that time being similar to what it is now because Stoke taking their first steps this season without Nathan Jones and with Rory Delap in the dugout. There were, I think, five changes made, a, a rigorous 3-5-2 formation looking for plenty of, of bite, plenty of solidity, uh, and that's not at all what happened. This was a very, very concerning performance from a Stoke team that don't appear to be playing with the shackles off without their manager or with their manager having lost their, his job. Yeah, it was it, I, no surprise by the way that they were set up for the game um, is what I would say. I think that after what Nathan Jones had tried to implement at the club, it was always likely that um, Rory Delap coming in as the caretaker boss was going to try and um, change things up a bit. And if you look at the squad that they've got at their disposal, um, bringing in the likes of Sam Vokes and maybe going a little bit more direct um, and not really pressing West Brom um, in the way that Jones's team have looked to play a high tempo game um, it wasn't too surprising. But they were really poor. Um, whether that was tactically from from Delap to instruct the players to change their their way they approach the game, um, or whether it was just West Brom completely outplaying them, I'm not entirely sure. But straight away, this looked to me like another step back. And I know that it's hard to say that because under Jones, they've four four victories in 38 games or whatever. Um, it's hard to get much worse than that. But straight away, looking at this team, the way they were set up, the performance that they put in, um, I hope that they're some way down the line to finding that new manager because this didn't look like a very good... Um, you, you sometimes see teams performing better in the aftermath of a struggling manager getting sat, but this wasn't one of them. 
There have been plenty of names bandied about in terms of who might take over. It's probably worth our while just waiting to see who gets appointed rather than, than commenting on speculation and on rumour. Sam Vokes, you mentioned there, came into the team at his best. He's meant to be a handful for defenders, but I don't know what the opposite of a handful is, but that, that was his performance on Monday night. Carter Vickers in at centre-back, supposedly an assured young defender who's had the perfect Football upbringing, really, uh, uh, through Tottenham's youth system. But again, really desperately poor and giving away a mindless penalty, really summing up the general malaise around the club. From a, a West Brom perspective, though, uh, over the championship weekend, and this sums up how tight the division is, we're going to touch on the division as a whole, given that we've just hit the uh, 33% through mark, the third of the way through, is that over the weekend we had West Brom start the weekend top of the table, and then over the course of Saturday and Sunday, we saw Swansea hit the top. We saw Leeds hit the top. We saw Preston hit the top uh, and then West Brom again. So very much standing up to their rivals, a, a, a very solid away performance and a clean sheet, which we haven't seen too many of from, from West Brom. This game, it feels like, again, we have to talk about Romain Sawyers because it, it's no chore for us, that's for sure. One of our favourite EFL players over the last four or five years, but certainly this season as well, he... And you discovered this, and I took all the acclaim tweeting it from the not, not the Top 20 Twitter account. He made twice as many passes as anyone else on the pitch. It was as if he was playing a different sport altogether to some of those opponents. Yeah, he's. He, I think everyone's seeing now, maybe it's because he's playing for a club with a bit of a higher profile, just how good that he is. Uh, anyone who saw him progress at, um, at uh, Brentford will know the work that he's done, we of course covered the article written in The Athletic a couple of weeks ago about, about him and, and the progression from that attacking midfielder at, at Walsall to now this ball-playing um, midfielder at West Brom who even got a comparison to Luka Modric on the commentary on Sky last night in, in the way that he plays. And you know, whilst no one's suggesting he's as good as Modric, I think that makes sense because he's, a, he's an elite passer. His ball retention is superb. He moves very well. He can carry the ball. Uh, he is has everything you'd really want um, in a midfielder. Maybe his physicality isn't the best, but that's why he's got Jake Livermore alongside him to do some of that work. And I think that that pivot um, deep for West Brom is going to be so important to their success this season. They um, look strong all through the, the pitch, don't they really? Bartley and Ajay were very good last night. Uh, Phillips getting the opening goal. He's got the easiest job in the championship at the moment because so much of their play is focused down the left-hand side where Pereira and Diangana link up so well. And then those balls across the box, it's almost as if Phillips' one job is just to be on the end of them. And, yeah. and in the last few weeks, he's definitely profited from that. Still, do, you think, do you think we should do a poll on Twitter? Um, between who's more important to West Brom, vote Remain Sawyers or vote Levermore? Because <laughs> <laughs> I reckon that might be 52-48, but the, the other way around this time, possibly. Uh, unlike the current political climate, I feel like those two individuals would want to be considered as one, um, Very which true. is what this once great nation could uh, would so so sorely need. Mm. Anyway, let's, <laughs> let's move on from that. I want to talk to you about Hull, George. There were uh, so many teams that won in the championship this weekend. We're simply not going to go through every game or we'll be here all day. But let me break them down into away wins. We saw Hull win at Fulham, Huddersfield at Brentford, Swansea at Wigan, Preston at Charlton and Nottingham Forest at Luton. With respect to uh, Swansea, Preston and Forest, I feel like a lot of those, a lot of the stories and circumstances around those results we've kind of touched on before. Swansea edging a close game, Preston edging a close game with a penalty. Um, Nottingham Forest putting in a very good uh, away performance with, with great 
quality on the counter-attack with Graben performing. So we're not going to go in-depth on those three games. Let's talk about Hull beating Fulham 3-0, certainly the eye-catching result of the championship weekend. And three wins in a row for Hull, which followed a 3-0 loss at Huddersfield and a 3-2 loss at home to QPR. Hull, one of the many teams just summing up the championship at the moment. Uh, Two weeks ago, doom and gloom. Uh, Two weeks later, nine points from nine. And and this one, the cherry on top to go to Craven Cottage and win 3-0. And for everyone to say, despite 25% possession, absolutely deserved the better team. Well, that's exactly it. I mean, it's exactly the same performance as we've seen from this Scott Parker team too many times in his infant managerial career where you've got... uh, 725 attempted passes and eight shots in the game, um, especially when you're 1-0 down after nine minutes at home to Hull. You'd expect to have more than eight shots in the game. It's that not good enough. terrible. Um, it's not good enough. Uh, but credit to Hull here. This you know, this isn't about Fulham. Um, Fulham fans and Scott Parker will know they need to improve and I'm sure we will see an improvement from them. And if that means changing the style of play, which is something in itself that I have been impressed by Parker's ability to do within games this season. And we've seen other people saying it as well. Um, but in this instance, they, he was outthought by by Grant McCann. Um, the class players on the pitch weren't the the Premier League old boys that we that we know the big names from Fulham. It was um, it was Krasitskis and Bowens. Uh, really good to see Tom Eaves get quite a fortuitous goal. <laughs> there after... were a few comedy goals in the EFL this weekend. The the Cambridge winner from Lewis, which he basically tackled into the net. Uh, the Gillingham goalkeeper and, and defender having a mix-up, which Michael Smith of Rotherham profited from. But Eves scoring with a first touch, which also caused him to trip and fall over, has got to be th- the best of the lot. Yeah. Um, I mean, one player who I'd like to single out for a bit of praise, who's who started all three of those whole games, is Leo de Silva-Lopez, who I have said in the past, I'm not entirely sure what he necessarily brings to a team but that was two years ago when he was 18 years of age it's mm. incredible to think he's still only 20 years old unbelievable um he'd only made one start for Hull before um the first of those three games that you mentioned so he's played 90 minutes in all three of them in the league and has been a really really important presence in the center midfield as well so if McCann can get him playing regularly and playing well at the age of 20 then that's just another asset that Hull have got in what is you know definitely a, a pretty good starting eleven. Um, I think when you dig in beneath into the squad, maybe that they, they don't have the strength and depth that you'd hope. Well, um, certainly, but especially when we talk, we've spoken about, about Kevin Stewart earlier this season as well. So to have those options in the middle of the park with Honeyman, Stewart, Lopez, Irvin gives them lots of options and lots of quality. So um, yeah. Good, good stuff for, for a player who I've never been sure about before, but who's starting to prove his worth. Yeah, outside of Bowen and Grzycki, you're absolutely spot on. Other players stepping up and performing at a level that perhaps we haven't seen from them. And, and, and maybe that's thanks to the job being done by Grant McCann on the training ground, but also in marshalling this team, uh, but also playing with Bowen and playing with Grzycki when they're on form like this can only drag everyone's standards up I think and and Device and Burke at the back have been excellent the last few games they're a a centre-back pairing that I've normally uh, I've normally thought of goals conceded when I think of this Hull team to be quite honest but the last few weeks they've been a lot better in that sense Callum Elder has come in back from injury and made the left back spot his own, possibly the man of the match uh, on on the weekend as well. You mentioned De Silva Lopez, Toral has also been a feature of this good run of games with Stewart and Honeyman having been dropped 
for Toral and uh, Silva Lopez three games ago. So um, there's plenty of people to take credit for this good form. As with every team that we seem to talk about that's on a good run, we can't get carried away because so far in this division, this normally is the preface for a bad spell. Just like the bad spell was preface for a good spell. And I'm tearing my hair out basically trying to judge these teams uh, in general. But I think, I think, I mean, anyone who... It's very easy after a team has won a few games in a row to just assume that's going to be the start of a good run. But the fact is that, you know, Oxford are currently the, the longest unbeaten stretch with, I think it's 11. So that just shows you that teams lose games. Good teams lose games. Good teams will go on bad runs as well. So just the fact that Hull have won three games in a row shouldn't mean that we should expect them to go forwards and um, beat West Brom on Saturday. Um, and if they do, then they're probably going to drop points again soon. Similar, I mean, with Huddersfield as well at the moment, what a run they're on at the moment. Brilliant. And Danny Cowley and, and his brother have undoubtedly turned their fortunes around. But, you know, they're, they're going to drop points soon. They're going to lose games. It's, it's how you react to that. And it's how many points you pick up over a period of time rather than in these these small clutches. You did my segue for me there because Huddersfield, the other obvious away victory to talk about, at Brentford, who themselves had been on a good winning run. Greg, who's a Huddersfield fan, said this was a textbook showing from the road dogs, solid defence and aggressive press led by Campbell, Hogg and O'Brien. Uh, David, who's a Brentford fan, said Huddersfield dished up the perfect recipe for playing away. The Cowleys are building a solid base, Hogg and O'Brien class and Grant always a threat on the break. So three players being mentioned in both of those Sunday scouting reports. But this is going to have to be another ode to the Cowley brothers, surely. This is um, uh, even us, who were very positive about this appointment, despite some reservations from some as to whether they could step up to a higher level. This is even better than we could have imagined because you would assume, or at least I would imagine, based on what we know about them, that mid to long term, this Huddersfield team will improve under them. But to also be getting the results in the short term is something that sometimes is missing. Uh, and that's absolutely not the case here. The the achievements just in the short term of turning around the team that you kept mentioning had only won one game in a year or whatever the stat was into a, a team where everyone seems to know their jobs, uh, are able to perform their jobs well and they're getting the best out of players like Hogg and O'Brien and Carlin Grant and Dia Carby in a way that the, the man before them wasn't. So, um, look, the funny thing is, we're seven games into this run, I think they are, and uh, they're still 18th in the in the table. They're still nine points off the playoffs. They're still 12 points off automatic promotion. So that slow start. Doesn't that in itself just show you how important it was to change the manager? I mean, just think about how the position they were in under Jan Siva and, and how that was allowed to happen. The fact that the, the Cowardly brothers have come in and done you know, the best job probably in England since they took over, and yet they're still that far detached from the playoff positions. It's just... Just yeah, I mean the the juxtaposition between the two sets of results um, is pretty startling. Yeah, for Fulham and for Brentford, familiar issues. I think you touched on it there. Fulham's ongoing concern, I suppose, is how to turn possession into meaningful chances. They've got a striker in Mitrovic, who is the top scorer in the division with a great goal scoring rate. Um, but some of those goals are coming in bursts, and this Fulham team need to get try to reach the point that they were at two seasons ago where their attacking threat is so varied and so immense uh, that teams can't really handle them. As is, it looks like there's a blueprint of sorts to playing against Fulham uh, at Craven Cottage. Nottingham Forest performed it well. Charlton, when you were there, uh, and now Hull getting that 
3-0 win with a, a fast and direct counter-attacking style seemingly the way to go. And Brentford, well, issues putting teams away at home are, are nothing new there, but still unsolved. Leeds won at home. So did Blackburn beating Sheffield Wednesday. So did Reading beating Millwall. Derby beating Middlesbrough and Cardiff beating Birmingham. Um, Leeds to QPR nil, probably the most comfortable win out of those. Uh, which other ones are, would we say are notable? Possibly Reading's 2-1 win at home to Millwall. A good start for unpopular appointment Mr Bowen, who has got two wins and a draw in his first few games. Yeah, maybe not quite so unpopular now, you, you, you think. Um, interesting as well, you pointed it out, you flagged it very early about his, his willingness on his team to win the second balls and do the ugly thing as well. And, and it was the first thing he said in his interview on the, after the game on Saturday. Um, and I guess to do that against Millwall, who are a side that we would associate with doing all those things very well, against the Gary Rowett team, who I think we'd associate with doing all those things very well, is, is pretty significant. Um, also interesting to see how it continues to be the players that he has brought back to the fold who are making the impact. Uh, Sam Baldock with a fantastic finish um, for their second goal. And uh, it, I mean, it's very hard for us to assess what Reading should be doing this season. It's very hard for us to now, you know, given that the increased expectation of Reading fans before the season started, especially after their transfer window and the start that Mark Bowen's made, should they be now hoping for a kind of a, a higher mid-table finish mm. or? Is this a case of staying up? Is it a case of understanding long-term what Mark Bowen um, can do? It's it's difficult to know. But as ever, whenever managers get off to this kind of a fast start, they always seem to be held up against what they've done previously. So it's probably worth just a word of caution to Reading fans that this might not happen every week. Yeah, um, and, and Callum, who's a Reading fan, pointed out in his Sunday scouting report that this was a win more in the style of, of Paul Clement than Jose Gomes or Yap Stam. Um, I've noted that they have had less possession in all three games under Bowen against Preston, QPR and Millwall. Not significantly so, sort of 45, 46, 47%. Um, but that it, it doesn't immediately look like that's how the squad should play. If you look at um, the midfield with Swift and Ajaria in it, for example, if you look at ball-playing defenders like, like Matt Miazga, it doesn't necessarily look like it. But if this team is a side that can be good enough in possession but if Bowen wants to turn them into an absolute fighting machine it's not something that I've ever necessarily um, related to a, to a Reading side but that's going to be effective in some way but it is worth out it is worth pointing out that that looks like the the route that he's going to go down so we might start having to put Reading into the the category of you know direct hard-working side rather than, than anything else and yet they've still got two up front in Pushkas who is a good target man and, and Bulldog who runs around a target man very well. Um, they've got Ajaria and Swift continuing in the centre of midfield with Rinomota. So, you know, there's there's plenty of quality on the ball when they have it. So it'll be interesting to see how this team develops under Bowen with a focus on second ball win percentage. Uh, concerns for Middlesbrough, George. Not to take anything away from Derby, uh, whose forward Tom Lawrence bagged two goals in their win against Middlesbrough. But I feel like the ongoing issues at Middlesbrough, especially in the wake of Huddersfield's improvement. Um, quite worrying times. They haven't scored a league goal in four. Jonathan Woodgate getting very heavily questioned and, in fairness, very bullish in his responses, but sometimes not always 
to our eyes anyway, saying the right thing. But even worse for him, performances on the pitch, not getting better. In fact, possibly getting worse. <laughs> Definitely getting worse. Definitely getting worse. Uh, there are some, yeah, there are some managers who, when they come into a job and the way they approach it, um, kind of a, a little bit brenty, for for want of a better word, mm-hmm. um, where they seem to be saying things in their post-match interviews or pre-match interviews or any real interviews, um, which just doesn't tally alongside what anyone else is seeing. And Woodgate carries himself in that way. I mean, I think the important thing with Woodgate, which is different to everything else, is that he's quite clearly very popular as a person around Middlesbrough and he's quite clearly very popular um, at the club to the extent that people are desperate for him to do well. And that can be a blessing or a, or a... A burden, really, and it's getting to the stage now where it's going to be a burden for this club who uh, sacked a manager in the summer who had them on the brink of the playoffs and replaced him with, you know, a cheaper option, I guess, in, in Jonathan Woodgate in his first role in the same year that they were no longer getting parachute payments. But now, if they're going to be stuck with a guy who's not particularly up for the job at this time and going to have to continue getting rid of some of the class players at the club, you're thinking the likes of Britta Sombolonga, people like Johnny Housen as well, guys who are going to be on big wages for this level. If his job is going to be to put apart this team while staying in the division and also looking to reinvest shrewdly, I don't really see how he's the man to do that because there's no evidence to suggest he's doing anything good at all with this current crop. And if they're going to be losing players rather than investing money because of the parachute payment situation, they could get themselves into trouble very quickly. So I'm more than concerned for them. I, I, I think that there has to be a rethink here about how, what they're going to do to go forward, what they're going to do to ensure that they aren't relegated this season. And I assume at the top level at the club, the ambition is still to get back to the Premier League. They are so far off that path. Um, I mean, Woodgate says in his interviews that he remains confident. He'll always be confident. I mean, he's it's, it's blind confidence at the moment because there's nothing to suggest it's going well. It feels like, given the off-field changes that are happening as you say they no longer receive parachute payments they've been very open when he was appointed about changing the style of play but also the lowering the average age of the squad the fact that they still have uh, as reported by the daily mail in the week uh, senior players who have been at the club for a long time in good times as well as bad times who as you mentioned will be on decent maybe premier league legacy level wages essentially being told they either have to take massive pay cuts or already at this early stage of the season basically being told that there's no way they're going to be at the club next season. All of that serves to make me think he's going to be slightly undermined by off-field issues while also going through on-field issues. Now that just compounds his issues. I don't know 100% what um, what the structure is there. I know that they've got a head of recruitment, Adrian Bevington, who is presumably being tasked with this lowering of the average age of the squad, but whoever is communicating with the senior players about their their wage cuts and and creating potentially a bit of an atmospheric issue at the club while doing so at this early stage of the season where they're not performing well, just leads me to think that Woodgate has not got a solid base to, to work with, but absolutely can't argue with what you said that the last few times I've seen them play, there's been so, so little to, to be impressed with. You know, his line last week about the the league table lying is something that we agree with. That's the sort of thing I quite like hearing from a manager because it it hints at uh, an acknowledgement of 
of under of um what's it called underlying numbers of performance data that's you know interesting to us and exciting in a way because we look at that stuff too to then follow it up with the, the next sentence and it shows we should be doing much better or we deserve to be higher when that's not the way we're reading the very same data um again leads me to be quite concerned so first of all borough need to find a way to create chances and take them uh, and then we can start from there and, and see how they go uh, let's move on to just touch on the leads game because i mean it, it was notable in how under the radar this leads home win was because a lot of games at ellen road this season have not been uh, under the radar because they've been struggling uh, and phil hay writing for the athletic uh, where he covers Leeds United, one of the best local beat reporters that exists in English sport. Uh, his article, Ellen Road is still missing its mojo, but Bielsa won't care, was a, a thoughtful piece, George, on Leeds' home record this season, why it's been as it is. Uh, so far, the second fewest goals across uh, the whole EFL seen at Ellen Road in league games this season, which... Seems a bit surprising, doesn't it? Because Leeds not thought of as a defensive team. Um, but there's a couple of different things at play here, aren't there? And, and Phil delves into it quite well. What did you get out of out of this piece? It's interesting. I think the the part of it which resonated with me the most is, I mean, I'll read out a little snippet from Phil. There's a danger here of taking him, him being Bielsa, for granted and allowing the familiarity to erode the fact that Bielsa is working to a budget. These are players who did not look cut out for bottom half sides before he took hold of them, turning them into a team who were so close to promotion last season that the local newspaper in Leeds began asking the city council about plans for an open top bus parade. Bielsa's philosophy is a rod for his own back, encouraging the presumption that there is no limit to how good his teams can be, but Ellen Road has been waiting since the summer for his players to create the same buzz at home. Now that is, is central to this, where you have a club in Leeds whose underperformance is you know, so profound for a decade, it's, it's almost you know, infamous. Uh, and a club who are currently third in the league on 28 points, who are seen to be underachieving. Um, a club who are also at home this season in seven games, have won four, drawn two and lost just one, and have only conceded three goals. Yes, they've con- they've only scored seven goals, and Preston, for example, have scored twenty two from their eight. So there is a reason here for for Leeds fans to feel a little bit shortchanged, especially given what happened last season at Ellen Road. But at the same time, the idea that they are somehow, you know, being let down by this Leeds team, or or that Ellen Road is suddenly a boring place to go and watch football, is is quite incredible if you think about how we were talking about this team you know, back in February or March. Um, the job that he's doing there is unbelievable. He's getting them much, much closer to the Premier League than any manager has done uh, previously since they were relegated. Um, and I, I have no doubt at all that whilst the you know of those two numbers, say at Ellen Road, the seven goals for, three goals against, I think if you took the goals per game ratio for and the goals per game ratio against now and had a look at the end of the season, I think the goals against ratio will stay fairly similar. I was going to be cheeky. And the cheeky. goals for will go, will go up. So I was going to be cheeky and ask you who you think has more home league goals at the end of the season between Leeds and Preston. Preston with, what, 15 more at the moment? And, um, and I guess still I do, well, I think, probably 16 games to go. I think Preston would be would be favourites for that quite heavy favourites as well because uh, the 
manner of the way that Leeds play, the ability with which they stop their opposition from getting on the ball in um, advanced areas and in dangerous areas, the strength of their defensive unit means that one goal and definitely two goals will, will normally be enough to win a game. Whereas Preston's more um, gung-ho style, let's say, will always mean that there's, there's space up at the back for, for teams to punish them as well. So who will have more home points? Currently Preston on 20 after after eight games, Leeds on 14 after seven games, I would say Leeds. Um, and I think that Patrick Bamford is going to start taking these chances again with the one-on-one on Saturday. I thought he did basically everything right. It was a fantastic tackle. He was also very, I mean, I only saw one camera angle, but the, the offside looked very, very marginal. That's not to say it wasn't offside, but again, just a bit of a slice of luck that didn't go his way. I'm not a massive fan of his, but you cannot continue to be in goal-scoring positions and not score. And his goal-scoring record in the past has been good enough to show that he can put these goals away. So um, it is an interesting piece. And that that's the part that struck me because it's almost something that's, that I've thought about before without ever really seeing it expressed in that way. And, mm. it, and it's just definitely something I agree with. I think what I took from this or, or the thing that really got my juices flowing more than anything else was towards the end of the piece where Phil writes, Bielsa wants his football to be an unmissable spectacle, but Leeds, after all this time, would take promotion however it comes. Just to focus on that phrase, an unmissable spectacle, because this is in the context of so few goals being seen at Ellen Road in league games this season. Now, we were slightly spoiled with the game that we saw against West Brom. Only 1-0 to Leeds, only 1-0 in the, the game. But I consider that, in championship terms, an unmissable spectacle. And I think the important part when you think about this and this is going to come across like a massive Leeds Bielsa fanboy, and I, I don't really mean it to sound like this, but I, I still do believe this. It takes two teams to create an unmissable spectacle. Leeds's low-scoring home games are, A, because they haven't taken the myriad of chances they've created, but also because of the way the opposition play when they go to Allen Road. A, a, a blueprint, I suppose, that teams didn't really follow last season as they came to adapt to Bielsa's style, but certainly can follow now fairly, fairly easily, I think. And no other team really has teams set up like this, with the exception potentially of Fulham, whose opposition have also understood that that's the best way of playing. But it doesn't le- lend itself to unmissable spectacles, essentially attack v defence with a team waiting for one or two or three moments to spring and and, uh, and score on the counter. I don't really know how you can blame Bielsa and or Leeds as a whole for that because, and, and you certainly can't blame the opposition either, but in terms of, I, I, I guess I wouldn't want anyone to think that because there haven't been goals at Ellen Road this season, that means that it's boring, it's, it's a missable spectacle. We had a great time at a 1-0 win. But I was going to say that we were lucky that West Brom turned up and, and went toe-to-toe with Leeds. It takes two to tango, and West Brom tangoed. But most teams aren't tangoing, and I suppose that's the the, the the issue of sorts. This game against QPR on the weekend, a team not suited to sitting deep and defending. Um, Leeds were very comfortable, didn't really get out of third gear, but they probably had their first big slice of luck as well of the season at home uh, when their, their second goal, which took a ricochet off a QPR defender. So... I think we both expect things to improve in terms of goals scored at Ellen Road this season. I think we're both, potentially more than Leeds fans, still pretty confident that Leeds, in the long term, over 46 games, are an automatic promotion team. But we need more of those games on Saturday, that's for sure. Uh, Phil's journalism is sensational. His piece, really interesting. If you'd like to read it and way more 
on the Athletic site, uh, then head to theathletic.co.uk forward slash NTT20. Uh, that is a link that will get you a free trial, courtesy of us, but also 50% off going forward. There's so much content on there now. It keeps coming and coming. And the, the main issue is not its quality. It's actually keeping up with it all. So give The Athletic a go today. Sign up to your free trial using theathletic.co.uk forward slash NTT20. Um, Georgian League One this weekend. I think it's fair to say it wasn't a vintage weekend necessarily, but we have got a managerial departure. So we'll start with that. Something that we've talked about a fair bit over the last few weeks, a poor run of form that got worse and worse and could not be ignored. MK Dons losing to Tranmere on the weekend and parting company sacking Paul Tisdale. Uh, They've replaced him already, which is very swift, impressive in a way. To have someone lined up, looks like other teams in the EFL are not sacking their managers with much of a succession plan. But they've replaced him with Russell Martin, which is an interesting appointment, given that he has recently retired from playing, has no experience uh, as a manager, and inherits a team very much in a relegation scrap. What did you think about the sacking of Paul Tisdale, and what do you think about the appointment of Russell Martin? Is there anything that says... Dan Machichi to you in your ear? No, <laughs> I think I think that Russell Martin, um, you know, Machichi was a a coach, and Russell Martin is a player. To, to be clear, my point being, <laughs> last time MK Dons were in trouble at League One level, and they sacked their manager. They replaced him with a of course, un- yeah. untested manager. Definitely, I Just get being that. Provocative. Yeah, yeah, no, I understand that. I understand that. But it's, I mean, it's difficult to know what to think about this MK Dons decision because. Um, nobody saw this coming. I don't. Th- I think it's fair to say that no one thought that uh, seven or eight games ago that suddenly they were going to go on a mazy losing run, um, and Tisdale would be seemingly incapable of, of prevent of basically getting them to do anything competent on a football pitch at all. Um, so, uh, when you've got a team who who like cannot score goals, can't stop conceding, cannot win games, you have to make a change and. I would be very surprised if Paul Tisdale was the main reason why this had happened. Um, I think that he's probably one of the assets that if they could have made other changes at this time, would have been one of the ones to keep in order to try and make a change. But because of the nature of football, they cannot do anything till January. They're stuck with this squad um, for at least seven weeks now. Um, a change can stimulate something that, that will cause an upturn in fortunes. They've got two cup games coming up next, one against Port Vale in the FA Cup and then a and then a leasings.com game, which at least gives Martin a couple of games just to find his feet. If they lose to MK, uh, sorry, if they lose to Port Vale at home in the FA Cup, it doesn't matter. If they're losing to leasings.com, it doesn't matter. Just you know, get to grips with bigger manager, putting your team out effectively and see what happens. So I, I think it's tough on Tisdale. I don't blame him, but I, I think that if they hadn't made this change now, come January or, or February, they could have been looking in a very perilous position. Although, having said that, this League Two, sorry, League One this season is just bizarre. And, you know, they're putting in about four wins away from staying up. So, Well, they had four wins from their first seven games. Mm. That's the remarkable thing. And speaks to what you said about how no one saw this coming. I mean, I thought this was a, a playoff contender. Uh, and I didn't see anything in the first month of the season to necessarily put me off that. So, uh, really peculiar. Uh, just two goals scored in their last nine games. Uh, a player against them on the weekend, Russian Hepburn Murphy for Tranmere, scored more goals in that game in 90 minutes than MK Dons have 
in their last nine games. We're going to get on him, on to him rather, in just a second. On Russell Martin, um, he's a very popular figure from what I can tell throughout his, well, the latter stages of his career, certainly, uh, certainly with uh, Norwich fans where he was such a legendary player for so long. But generally, you, you pick up vibes when you follow the amount of EFL accounts that we do, especially local journalists. You, you, you do pick up a good idea of which players are, are popular as men, I suppose, um, that people like dealing with, that people find very pleasant and agreeable, um, who they like listening to. And Russell Martin certainly fits that bill. So it will be interesting to see how he takes to management. Um, I know that there are some aging footballers who are, let's say, in their mid-30s, like Martin, who... One I was talking to the other day who will remain unnamed, but this is nice and, su- and suspicious, is uh, was saying to me that he feels going into management would be really difficult because of how different a young player is even to how their football upbringing was. So even a current player thinking that the change in, I guess, how young people behave and act and how they respond to things has changed to such an extent and the football world having changed slightly with it that he is basically dreading the thought of being a, a manager because he's not sure he'll have the right skills to deal with it. So someone like Martin, who is so popular, who, who seemingly has very good people skills, um, is certainly one to watch as he makes his first steps into management. Uh, Russian Hepburn Murph, Murphy scoring a sensational hat-trick against MK Dons. They were down to 10 men. There was a bit more space for him. But the combination of speed of movement and of finishing that he showed on the weekend was very eye-catching and very exciting. This is a highly rated young player on loan from Aston Villa who has played for all the England youth teams up to, I think, the under-20s. Slightly hit a bit of a, a uh, an obstacle in the last year or two. Not good enough to break into Aston Villa's team like almost every youth team striker for a Premier League or Championship team. The pathway is just not there. I know that Connolly of Brighton is one of the few getting regular, um, consistent opportunities. So Hepburn Murphy on loan at Cambridge last season, maybe struggled to adapt a little bit, showed a few flashes. And with Tramier this season, they've mainly been playing with one up top, mainly Payne, more of a target man. It's not really Hepburn Murphy, often playing wide, not his best position playing through the middle on the weekend, showing what he can do and hopefully giving Mickey Mellon a bit of a headache because that's the sort of attacking play that we want to see more of. Really, really good stuff. George Bolton beat Fleetwood 2-1. Clearly, I didn't see this coming. I picked Fleetwood to win on the betting show. I'm still reeling, to be honest, from the losses incurred on this result. So tell me about about Bolton. They were were 2-0 up at half-time and they saw it out this time. They didn't flag. They didn't tire. Or if they I've did, been tr- I've been trying to tell you this: that Bolton aren't bad. You know, I think that's the takeaway from from their last few weeks. I mean, I don't think they're by any means particularly good, but they're they're not a whipping boy of this league anymore. Um, you look at the results since Keith Hill and uh, David Flickcroft came in, and they are consistently competitive. At worst, the worst result they had was a two-one, so a three-one defeat at home to Rochdale, where they were one 0 up with about twenty-five minutes to go, having not won before this season, and maybe unsurprisingly. Um, crumbled. I was going to use a different saying there, but I've had to put explicit on the uh, on the uh, podcast label. Um, you know, this wasn't necessarily a 
as, as simple as a 2-1 win as, as you'd think um, when you see the results. Uh, they went 2-0 up after half an hour and had to kind of with, withhold a pretty heavy storm from Fleetwood for, for the rest of the game. But this is a good Fleetwood team. A very good goal from Josh Morris coming off the bench. Uh, a very bad miss from Paddy Madden, who's probably due a couple of bad misses given how clinical he's been this season. Um, nothing to get... I mean, with this Fleetwood team, every time they drop points, it's almost as if people think that the bubble's going to burst and they're going to be one of the first of these teams towards the top end of the table to fall away. I don't think that's the case. Nothing to panic about. Um, just as it wasn't anything to panic about when we saw them get beaten 2-1 at Coventry, they're going to be fine. But for Bolton, they're building up a proper head of steam here that you know, if, if they win a few more games, let's say, and the likes of MK Dons and AFC Wimbledon continue to be as, as poor as they are, and assuming that Sol Campbell's not going to do Mission Impossible too, And assuming they don't get further points deductions indeed for missing which, games. Which, which, which they have to do right now. I mean, that, that, that may come, and if it does come, they'll have to deal with it. But they are, you know, they're solid enough at the back and they've found it's a brilliant finish from Daryl Murphy um, for the second goal. Chris, o- Chris O'Grady's first was uh, one of the comedy goals I think you were alluding to earlier. But, uh, you know, with Murphy and O'Grady up top, they've got two guys who are going to put chances away. And um, I'm not saying I think they're going to stay up, but I-, I think that Bolton, from what I can see at the moment, are likely to finish above South End. They've got 31 league games to play. That's... They've got three games in hand on many, or almost all the teams around them. Um, 31 games still to play. If they were to get 1.5 points per game, which anecdotally at least is normally around playoff chasing form, uh, then they would end up with 44 points, which given it's a 44-game season in League One this year, could be enough. That will be enough. Personally, to keep them up. But basically just because I think there's a gap in... Um, in League One this season and I think we're going to see a few of those teams down towards the bottom end of the table um, it's going to be a pretty horrible it's going to be a scrap that like we normally see in League Two um, so I think it's going to be 44 would probably be enough I don't think they'll get there but that's probably got to be the aim well there are still 10 teams in League One who are maybe even 11 teams who are getting 1.5 points or more per game at the moment so it's on they just need to be a, a playoff chasing team from here on in. Uh, Blackpool beating Posh 4-3 was probably the, the game of the weekend, just in terms of the amount of goals scored, own goals scored, remarkably bizarre looking refereeing decisions. Uh, all three of Posh's big three scoring and yet them okay. still being on the losing team. This felt quite Peterborough United, if I'm honest. Um, for, for Blackpool, not had the best month or two. Um, a, quite an important victory, I think it's fair to say. Older Nondrier, I was looking back. The armband. The, the armband, Nondrier. He was 100-1 to one top goal scorer for, for League One before the start of the season. Really? I mean, he, he won't get there because of Issa and Tony and, and well. Norwood, probably. But interesting, the extent to which he wasn't fancied for goals before the start of the season and how 15 games in, we look at him as quite a rare commodity at League One level, both a, a target man and a goalsman. And a penalty taker. And a penalty taker. Yeah, no, he's he's doing... I was actually thinking about that this morning when I was watching the highlights um, about his, well, how many goals he could get this season. Because he is... I mean, they are a team who are totally focused around getting him goals, which is always quite a good position to be in if you're a striker. <laughs> um, but they are... I mean, as you say, it's been a poor month for them. A big win here to get their first win. And I think you know, since, I think, four games on the trot, they hadn't, they hadn't won. And they're level on points for Sunderland. They played. They played a game more, but 
if they can get back to that early season form, there's no reason why they can't start thinking again about pushing up into the playoffs. Just you know, they're a point off the playoffs at the moment. So uh, goes to show how how important early season form can be. Um, and beating a rival up at the top there in Peterborough and putting four goals past them is is impressive, even if two of them were own goals. Um, so a, a big kind of watershed result, I'd say for. For, for Blackpool then there's a team that we seem to talk about like twice a month or every other week because they'll get a good result and then we don't talk about them maybe the next week because they've lost and that's Rotherham who are 10th at the moment they've only conceded 13 goals from 15 games which is a very impressive record um, but they are only in 10th they've won three away games in a row five already this season but they've lost their last two home games so a bit of a head scratcher for Paul Warren the positives are these away performances. They seem to have a setup and a personnel with real pace uh, on the wings. Ogbené on loan from Brentford in particular, but also Matt Crooks sticking very close to Smith, the target man, uh, and Crooks showing himself to be quite the goal-scoring number ten, uh, which is I think new for him. I, in my head, he's he's always played central midfield, but this is a bit higher up than I'm used to seeing him. But he seems to get in behind well and finish well. And with a solid defence that I alluded to as well, I feel like this team could be looking upwards from 10th position, but then they have been a frustrating team to, to be with, I suppose, this season, to be willing on upwards because they, they keep chucking in these really difficult or disappointing uh, performances. Ollie Walker on Twitter, League One analyst and great friend of the pod. This is someone who covers League One and follows League One closer than anyone, wondering aloud yesterday who is the best team in League One. And it feels like just over a third of the way through the season, still don't really know. I mean, you've got the early front runners in Ipswich. You've got the surprise package in Wickham, the top two at the moment. And then below them, Posh, Oxford, Fleetwood, Coventry, Sunderland, Blackpool, Bristol Rovers, Rotherham, Doncaster, who yeah, you can all point to making cases for, but so many cases against as well. I would say that Ipswich are the best team in, in League One. Um, not by a great stretch. It's not like we're looking at last season where there were quite clearly a few teams who are better than the rest. Um, but I think that on paper, their manager and the results, they tick all three boxes so far this season. They're only second probably. <laughs> What's the third box? Manager and results. Manager results. And on paper, I said. Oh, their squad on paper. If you if you nice. broke down, I mean, Sunderland would have an argument there. But, the lot, Holy but lot, lots of Sunderland players who people think are good aren't actually very good. So um, with Ipswich, it's it's a bit easier um, to, to point at them and say that they probably do have the best squads. <sighs> yeah, I mean, I'd say on the, the teams that have come down and retained their players, so Ipswich and Sunderland would, would be the two that I would say look it and then the manager in, in um, Paul Lambert showing that he can be pretty effective here and then they're also second in the league but they've played two games less than the top team and are three points behind so I would say them but there are teams Peterborough um, Oxford's I would say the two teams who when they really turn it on um, are seemingly capable of blowing anyone away in this league um, you know, Oxford have done it against two teams we've spoken about just then in, in Doncaster and Rotherham within the last couple of weeks um, Peterborough have done it to all manner of teams. If you give them any chance to, they'll put you away. And then Wickham, it would be incredibly disrespectful of us not to talk about them given they are currently top of the league. And to have lost one game in 16 is no fluke, even if maybe their win against Shrewsbury um, on Saturday possibly was a bit of a fluke because Shrewsbury had the lion's share of the chances at 0-0 to go 1-0 up. Wickham had very little 
um, but put away the one that they did, they did get and that was enough to win the game. Yeah, narrow home wins, as you mentioned, from Wickham and Sunderland. Not going to go in too deep there. Just on Sunderland, Jack tweeted his Sunday scouting report saying they are creating far more chances under Parkinson but still lacking an informed striker to finish them and any real pace or directness. Clear to see Parkinson on the side of the pitch imploring his players to make forward runs seems Ross's instructions hard to erase. One player that has stood out for me is Denver Hume at left back uh, playing really well recently. I enjoyed his performance at the Kassam last week uh, gaining confidence going forward and that will be huge for Sunderland genuinely if he can become a an attacking force swinging in a great cross for 9 on the weekend because McGeady's down that left-hand side as well and if there's any question in a defender's head that Hume is a threat then that makes McGeady's job an awful lot easier and, and that could be a big difference maker for them uh, moving on to League 2 two big chances for Southend on Saturday which is quite interesting mm. Um, given that they have really struggled to create anything so far this season. So maybe some green shoots for Sol Campbell's team there. Um, you know, whilst Sunderland were quite clearly good value for their win and um, probably should have won by more than just the one goal. Uh, promising, I would say, for Southend to go to a team who are probably the best defensively along with, with Ipswich in the whole league and to create two, two you know, they're charted as big chances, I guess, um, for um, it was, I think, Buomo and Goodship. So... Maybe some things to be positive about for Southend fans. In League Two, which Derby away win caught your eye most out of Forest Green winning 2-1 at Cheltenham in El Glossico or Port Vale winning 1-0 at Crewe in the Derby without a name? Which one of those results would <laughs> caught your eye the most? Um, <laughs> probably the, the Port Vale result at Crewe. Um, only because I may have said on this podcast the other day that I thought that crew were going to be coming unstuck quite soon. Ah. And their next game was postponed, I think I'm right in saying, and this is the first time we've seen them since. So it especially caught my eye on a sun Saturday afternoon post-Oyster when I was uh, <laughs> going through the, the goal scorers on my phone. Certainly caught my eye after tipping them to win easy home games two weeks in a row, which they didn't win yeah. <laughs> during a stretch in which they've beaten Bradford and crew away from home Stick as well. Stick to your guns, mate. That's the, that's the key to Maybe it. they're quite good, Port Vale, in a not particularly eye-catching way, but I am definitely keeping my eye on them. My concern is those home games against the poorer teams, whether they've got enough goals in them, whether they're able to... Um, attack teams I suppose to, to any great extent but love Smith and Leon Legg as a League 2 centre-back pairing um, follow me on Twitter yeah me too Leon Legg today I think that's because I said nice things or I said almost exactly what I'm saying now on the Quest Highlights show nice and uh, the Port Vale local journal typed up the quotes into a piece Quest Pundit says nice things about Port nice. Vale nice bit of organic outreach Organic outreach, great coverage for the pod, all those good buzzwords. Also, well really weird. I've, I think we're both used to listening back to ourselves now, but reading what you've said written down, I don't think I'll ever get used to that. Weirdly, I write down everything you ever say to me. <laughs> so I've got it all on my phone. Okay, well, uh, that was a very important win for Port Vale. We'd like to see them beating teams at home with more regularity, starting on the 16th at home to Carlisle United. Then they've got a, another winnable away game at Scunthorpe. So this could be a team to keep your eye on. Um, they are not conceding many goals at home, that is fair to say. Forest Green's first half, one of the most impressive bits of League Two football I've seen 
this season. They were everywhere. They were all over Cheltenham, a team with such a long unbeaten home record. I think 17 league games up to that point. They swarmed all over them. They won the ball in Cheltenham's half. They didn't let them play at all. They weren't phased by by Cheltenham's attacking output and they had quality going forward. And they've got an array of attacking players now, none of whom are or were particularly well-known players before the start of the season, but all of whom seem to be able to perform at a, at a good level in this Forest Green team. Aitchison on loan from Celtic looks like a serious player. Um, and then your man Ebu Adams in midfield. I'm just going to mention his name every week, I think, at this stage, because I think he's absolutely excellent. Really impressive first half performance from Forest Green, and that got them the win. Bradford beat Exeter 2-0. George, there have been so many top-of-the-table clashes in League 2 recently, probably because the top of the table is so congested. But it feels I, I was going to say, you've got Northampton in ninth for six points behind top spot. That's mad. Mm. Again, Sawford in, in 11th, just one point behind uh, Northampton. So. Right. You could have made the initial stat away <laughs> <Yeah>. better. <laughs> what if I told you, George, there's eight points between the top 13 teams? That probably would have been the right way of I'd doing have been it. Like, yeah, I just, I'm looking at the table and you're right. And my favourite stat of the weekend, if it's a stat, a whole new top three so with, with 17 games in, no, 16 games in, and after the weekend's games, the top three all moved out and a whole new top three moved in. Can I ask That's, you a question? What a, what a league. Amazing What league. a division. Great division. Can I ask you a question? Shame any one goes down because that kind of does ruin the league a bit. But if you were a Bradford City fan yeah, and you were having a fantastic start to the season, really looking forward to getting promoted back up to League One at the mm-hmm. first chance, really happy with the manager, Gary Bowyer, pretty chuffed with your, your strikers, but you're looking at the team you're level on points with in Swindon Town who have your striker banging in goals for them. I mean, left, right and centre doesn't do it justice. Mm. Up, down, left, right, wherever you want. How would you feel? And is this a bit of an issue? I mean, why? You assume that Owen Doyle wouldn't have wanted to go to a club that wasn't chasing promotion in League 2, but you'd think that there could have been a more fitting loan for Bradford not strengthening a team who they will be going up against to try and get promoted. I'm, g- I'm glad you've gone down the Ali Maxwell route of turning a question into a very long-winded piece of material. That I've watched is a, you doing it for three and a half that years. That is so. absolutely textbook stuff. Uh, and it's a good question and one I'm glad you've asked me because actually I'm not not a Bradford fan. I'd say there's about 2% of me that's a Bradford fan. My aunt and uncle used to live and work in Bradford and I used to go and visit a fair bit. I think I've got the 2003-2004 Bradford kit around the time that I just wanted every single football kit that existed in the world. So, uh, you know, it's not out of the question that I could have a soft spot for them. And I'm very happy to see them doing well. And from what I've seen, the Bradford fans are are trying to remain stoic about the fact that their own player is the best striker in the division, but playing for a promotion rival. The, The responses tend to revolve around him not fitting in with the system. If you remember the start of the season, we both looked at, their starting lineup and went, how are you going to play Donaldson, Vaughan and Doyle all in the same team? Sure enough, they couldn't. But I think they were probably at the point where Donaldson having just come in and Vaughan as well, probably not in a position to get rid of them, so to speak, to free up Doyle. So he was the one to go and it, it obviously doesn't look good at the moment. I think that they are remaining stoic, as I say, because things are going well for them. Um, but the, the longer it goes on, the, the, the more painful you can see it being. We've also discussed before that the hilarity that ensues when you look at some EFL players' heights uh, being listed 
And this, I might just it's be a very wrong. Very specific genre of comedy, that isn't it? It is, but it's it's also <laughs> hilarious. Uh, can, can I ask you? I mean, I might just be wrong here, and I think I probably am just wrong. But how tall would you say Owen Doyle is? Owen Doyle, I would say, is six foot one. Yeah, five foot ten listed as. What? I'm not having that. I'm taller than Owen Doyle. No, nor am I. If I, really? if I, if I was, I would score way less headers <laughs> because he scores quite a lot of them, and I fewer headers. Yeah, good point. That's a nod to someone. Um, yes, EFL heights are an absolute disaster on uh, online. Everything. And people put importance into them in a way that I think is is quite worrying. My main concern would be anyone working in recruitment within a club might make a view. Well, you say that. I'm pretty sure Carl Robinson didn't think that Jamie Hansen was, was five foot eight when he signed him and he was listed as six foot, six foot four centre <laughs> fielder everywhere. So... Do you think they thought it was James Hansen? Do you think they've got the height confused with uh, target man what, James Hansen? I thought they'd slot him into the middle of the park. We're getting in very deep here. Um, a good win for Exeter. Sorry, a good win for Bradford against Exeter. But in reality, quite an even game. Exeter very much between both boxes, looking potentially the better side, the more comfortable side with the ball at least. But no cutting edge for them. Alexander, an Exeter fan, tweeted us saying, watching this team was like trying to cut chewy beef with a plastic spoon, which I think is the sort of visceral comparison that we can all get on board with. Um, But a a good performance, I think, from Exeter, despite defeat and and Bradford getting an all-important clean sheet. George, I'm quite excited for Colchester United. I'm looking at their squad, their matchday squad, and I'm looking at a team that has more depth, certainly, in midfield and up front than I necessarily saw coming at the Welcome start of the season. Welcome to the party, finally. Well... You've joined me. <clears throat> I, what was that? I'm like? not taking anything away from you. <laughs> you. Just growl at me. I'm not taking anything away from you. But I don't think even you foresaw um, Kwame Poku coming from non-league and becoming... I know, I know Kwame very well. And at 18 years old, becoming one of the trickiest players in, in League 2. I'm not sure if you saw... Lapsley and Pell, the midfield two, being ditched for Comley and Stevenson, who are performing at such a high level that Lapsley and Pell, two very good performers at this level, are currently being benched. You definitely didn't foresee Giovanni Brown basically being their sort of fourth attacking option off yeah. the bench. And all of this is, is uh, it's exciting me, that's for sure. Uh, at the back, Eastman and Prosser, very, very safe pair of hands, or four hands, I suppose, two pairs of hands. <laughs> At the back, tennis and the goalkeeper as well. So that's six pairs of hands uh, and fullbacks. Well, they don't seem to be missing Vincent Young too much. Cohen Bramall playing really well the last few weeks, and Jackson as as uh, consistent as ever. So this three-two win against Mansfield capped off a week in which they beat Newport, they beat Crawley to move to the quarterfinals of the Carabao, uh, and they beat Mansfield away again. So definitely a team to keep their eye on. But Sam says on the Mansfield side of things, surely the end is near for Dempster. Not beaten a team above 18th yet this season. Only two home wins. Um, it felt a few weeks ago like they were turning things around somewhat, but maybe they've sort of stopped half turn. Yeah. Well, your face is showing that you don't necessarily I mean, agree. I've... And thankfully, you've got a platform in which to express yourself. <laughs> yeah, very true. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the home form is very troubling. Um, I mean, being beaten 3-2 against Colchester is no disaster. They're yet again very good going forward and, and leaky at the back. The 2-1 two, two, loss against Salford is poor and they needed a, a late goal against Walsall. So it strikes me as a team who are adept at creating chances and with the 
you know, the scorers with Maynard and Rose up top, they're always going to score goals and Andy Cook as well. I mean, they've got brilliant goal scoring options there. Three strikers who are very different who will all put goals away. Um, but at the back, it's, it's, it is really troubling. Um, there's no other way around it. Defenders not really um, performing at the level that we especially saw from last season. Last season, I said at one stage, I thought Christian Pierce was basically as good as it gets to that level. He is not showing anywhere near that level of form. Um, you've got the likes of Sweeney as well. I mean, Neil Bishop is playing every single game, age 38, which probably isn't ideal either. Um, I, I think there's enough here that I'm, I'm not going to um, do away with John Dempster yet um, because it was always going to be tough. A, a tough job, I guess, to take on. It's not ideal that they're detached from that pack that we spoke about higher up the table, but um, they just need a way to tighten things up at the back and I think they'll be okay because uh, six weeks ago there wasn't much to like at either end of the pitch and that's definitely changed Salford are creeping up the table slightly under the radar although it's not a hard table to creep up given how close everyone is but their recent form has been much improved they're, they're, a, they're a tough team to put your finger on I, I don't feel like I've got strong opinions on them or have even strengthened my opinions on them much since the start of the season. And given we came into the season not knowing a huge amount about this team, uh, I do feel slightly underqualified to talk about Salford. It might be the case that we need to go and visit them or watch one of their games in a uh, in an EFL midweeker or something similar. But um, they are on good form. They've won four of their last six league games uh, with a draw and a defeat in there as well. So one of the form teams in the division. George, did you enjoy... Kevin Ellison and Barry Roach taking charge of Morecambe on an interim basis, dropping themselves from the starting 11 uh, and getting what Matt Morecambe fan said was a galvanised fan base, a more adventurous team selection, uh, a best display at home all season and a positive style of play with a feel-good factor around the ground for the first time in ages. I I did enjoy it because, as I said, my my, my selection on the betting show, but for... Morecambe fans, and I think for basically everyone who's got an interest in League 2 football, I think everyone's delighted to see this result. Um, nothing to do with Leighton Orient, of course, purely just because Morecambe um, having to deal with a manager leaving to go to a club in a, in a division below, someone who's been at the club for so long, who has such an affinity to the fans and had been so loyal, um, it kind of felt like he was jumping ship in order to um, kind of uh, to let them, not let them rot, but let them get relegated in effect so really heartening to see this display totally deserve their win um yeah i mean are we going to see kevin ellison walker manager uh, i'd like to see it but uh, but we'll see i think i suspect sadly not i would love to see that as well but i f- i think from what i saw kevin ellison saying over the weekend that he's not expecting to get the job full-time he does want to continue playing for this team if and when a new manager comes in now with apologies to to swindon who got a good home win Cambridge, who got quite a fortuitous home win against Crawley. We're not going to go in depth on you this week. Plenty more chat on you to come, I'm sure. The last thing I wanted to say, George, is Carlisle won a home game. It was a a very poor quality match, that's for sure. When you were, on Sunday night, chucking your guts up, thanks to a dodgy oyster, I was watching Y-Scout clips of 17-year-old Carlisle centre-back, Jared Branthwaite. Now, he's played the last few games for Carlisle. I'd like to say again, he's 17 years old and he's playing at centre-back in League Two and that's enough to catch one's eye. He is really tall. 
I don't know what the internet says his height is, but I can confirm he's really tall and he looks a very interesting prospect. I think there's a risk of going overboard with players who have only played a couple of games, especially when they're so young, with so much development still to come and everyone's pathway is different and no young player's development is is linear. But really impressed with the way that he has stepped up to senior football, playing in a difficult position for a team that quite often struggles in matches. And as I mentioned, very tall, looks like he can pick a pass, looks very composed. I wanted to be, and I'm not the first person to mention him, but I want to be the first person to nail my colours to the mask, Jared Branthwaite. Keep an eye on him, ladies and gentlemen. We've got a 17-year-old playing centre-back in League Two, and I am here for it. Thank you for listening. Thank you, as always, for your support. Drop a retweet. Please drop a share. Tell your friends if you enjoyed this podcast. There's plenty of you, but we like to continue growing the podcast. Thank you to George for dealing with his dodgy oyster, and we'll talk again later on in the week.